Uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the National Library on this absolutely spanking winter's Canberra evening. My name's Alex Philpin. I'm the Director of Overseas Collections here at the Library. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for our country we are now privileged to call home. I'm delighted to see so many of you joining us here tonight for this, uh, this discussion with Rusty Young to explore the story behind his latest novel, Columbiana. Rusty Young is the author of the international bestseller, Marching Powder, the true story of an English drug smuggler in Bolivia's notorious, notorious San Pedro prison. And Rusty, I checked our catalogue today and you'll be delighted to know we've got a couple of copies in our stacks. Um, Rusty writes in pursuit of meaning and says he's found meaning and passion in political causes and trying to understand other people. During his time living and working in Colombia, he's interviewed special forces soldiers, snipers, undercover agents and members of two vicious terrorist organisations. Living amongst the people of Colombia, he saw their pain from the onslaught of corruption and violence that they lived in. He was struck most by the children and he vowed one day to turn their tales into a book and let their voices be heard and Colombiano is that, Colombiano is that story. Joining Rusty on the stage this evening is political journalist, writer, broadcaster and Canberra local Karen Middleton. We will have time for questions after their discussion before we, join you, uh, we, we um, ask you to join us in the foyer for book signing and a few, few drinks. So please join me in welcoming Rusty Young and Karen Middleton. Thanks. Welcome to sunny Canberra once again. Thank you, thank you, Karen. So I'm impressed you're in shirt sleeves. Everybody else is rugged up. I don't know how that works. I've just come from uh, Costa Rica, so I just wanted to show off my tan. All oh, right, that's okay. my noise. I'm actually freezing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk. I want to talk about both of your books because I think in order to understand how you ended up writing Colombiano, it's important to understand the first book and the first one, Marching Powder, was non-fiction, was a, a biography effectively, or an, almost an autobiography written by well, you. A, yeah, first-person biography written from someone else. <laughs> That's right. And the second one is a, is a novel, effectively, that draws right. very heavily on your real-life experiences. But I want to start, first of all, with you, because it strikes me that these are crazy adventures, and you're a boy from Mossman in Sydney, I think. Is that right? That's T right, yeah. Tell, tell us about your upbringing, upbringing in Sydney and how the boy from Mossman did the law degree and then ended up in... Bolivia and, and Colombia. Yeah, I was I was a pretty straight kid when I was when I was younger. Um, I had two fantastic parents are still together, Mari and Peter. Um, they've been married for almost fifty years now. So we had a really I've got a younger sister, who's two years younger, and went to private school and then I did commerce and law at New South Wales University. So I was on a trajectory, a fairly sort of conservative trajectory. Most likely would have ended up in the corporate world, I'd say. But I was also a little bit a little bit rebellious and also loved travelling. So one thing that my parents did. As we grew up, was always took us, you know, took us overseas, even if it was on a budget holiday. We were travelling a lot, and that really opened my mind up to, you know, other worlds and other people and other cultures. And so I continued travelling throughout university. I'd work really hard and save my pennies, and then go travelling, and then come back and do the same thing. And I really found, you know, Sydney and, and working in an office with a suit and tie really stifling. And I thought, this is there's got to be more to life than this. At the age of 24, I went travelling with my then girlfriend, Simone Camilleri, who's also a law graduate, and it was our last sort of big hurrah, last sort of backpacking adventure before we planned on joining the workforce. And I was travelling through, <coughs> through South America, through Bolivia, Peru and Ecuador, backpacking, staying in hostels like all the young kids do, 
and uh, we read about uh, San Pedro Prison, which was listed in the Lonely Planet Guidebook and the Footprints Guidebook as the world's most bizarre tourist attraction. And my first thought was, of course, why would anyone want to go into prison ever, but let alone when you're on a holiday, (laughs) particularly in a a developing nation. Bolivia is a really poor nation. It's a beautiful nation, great people, but unfortunately really um, sad history and a lot of corruption at the governmental level. Um, We went to this prison. We put our passports uh, with the police at the gate and the gate slammed behind us and we found ourselves inside the prison. So I hope that answers the question about my childhood, more or less. (laughs) Maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was destiny. You know, you... Prison's probably a good place for lawyers to end up, isn't it? Maybe. Well, how did you end up doing law? <laughs> I was just law? ahead of my time. If so. you were a kind of a, if you were kind of a rebel with a wanderlust, why did you do law at all? Yeah, because I mean, my parents, my mum's a teacher, you know, and my dad worked really hard, so we were brought up to sort of work really hard. I always wanted to be a writer. I sort of declared that when I was about fifteen. I said I want to be a writer, and I sort of, I think my dad said, "That's fantastic, son." What are you going to do for money? Yeah. <laughs> so Your dad is a smart man. <laughs> he was. So that was, you know, it was always my, you know, I guess I always had like artistic inclinations. But, you know, it's a real dream, particularly in Australia. I think the average writer, and I read this somewhere, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but the average writer in Australia earns $13,000 a year, right? Yeah. So to be, you know, to be in a privileged position where you can write for a living and that can be, that's your mainstay, that's what your life is, is it's, a, it's a dream. Um, I was very fortunate to sort of pull it off on, the, on my first attempt, but there was every, also every chance that I might have fallen flat on my face because when I, you know, when I wrote this book, I didn't have a publisher. I didn't didn't know any publishers. I didn't have a clue about how to get published. I just had this incredible drive to write this book, and it was only when I actually started running out of money and my parents were paying off my credit card, two credit cards. <laughs> they were paying off the interest bills every month, and they said, "You better get this book." published son <laughs> so they uh, really supportive parents my very um, close family got my cousins there in the back row there um, yeah so just I had a pretty normal upbringing but just wanted to do something different and it was just a matter of whether I was able to, to pull it off so you heard about this prison and you went to this prison and you did you stay overnight initially or did you just visit for the day trip. Yeah, so I went in with Simone. Uh, we were 24 at the time, and we paid five dollars. Two dollars fifty goes to the guard, the gate. Excuse me. Two dollars fifty goes to the guards at the gate, and two dollars fifty goes to Thomas and his bodyguards. It doesn't sound like much money, but in a developing nation, especially when you're in prison, you know, where ten cents is worth something, it's a lot of money. And he was he had approximately, depending on the day, between 50 and 70 tourists going through um, per day. This is Thomas McFadden, McFadden. who was a Tanzanian-born Englishman in there for cocaine trafficking. You should be a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) She's done her research. When I I grow up. (laughs) um, Yeah, so Thomas Thomas was, um, as you said, he's African-born English drug trafficker, caught with five kilograms, couldn't speak the language, and you have to have a job in this prison. It's pretty bizarre. We can go into the prison system in a second. But uh, he invited us in, gates slammed behind us, we did a one-hour tour. Our group was about 15 people. And then after that, he sort of said goodbye to everyone at the gate and, and he invited Simone, me and one other person, one other backpacker, back to his prison cell. And sort of we started talking, you know, just, in the, just amazing, hearing his amazing stories. The bell went, the, you know, the visitor's bell. It was 5 p.m., time for visitors to go home. We didn't want to go. We were having so much fun. And uh, he said, oh, if you give me another $5 each, you, know, you can stay the night. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? And I, of course, went... Yeah, that sounds like fun. I went, oh, 
girlfriend. <laughs> what was her attitude to that? Initially? She was encouraging it. <laughs> she was pretty. She was pretty daring herself. I mean, I, I wasn't worried for myself. I was worried for her. She's an attractive, twenty-four-year-old girl. Um, you know, doesn't speak the language. We're in a male prison. I didn't even know that, whether there was going to be, you know, bathrooms for women. But women and church, there are the, the, the convicted inmates can bring their wives, girlfriends, children, pets into the into the prison to stay. So the presence of women and children is certainly a, a civilizing influence inside the inside the prison, and it means also that they, that the male prisoners are extremely protective of, of women and children. Um, and if anyone touches a woman or a child in there, they, they really get punished pretty severely. So why did Thomas pick out you and Simone and this other guy to, st- to hang back? I mean, that's a question you'd probably be better off asking him, but he, he, said, he said to me afterwards, he says, oh, you're just super friendly, and the, you know, we're Aussies, we're you know, pretty sociable people in general, um, smiley, you know, and, he, and he, he had a policy against Americans. You know, wasn't, <laughs> he claimed not to be racist, but... Um, it was because he was really par- he was doing a lot of drugs. He was really paranoid about the, the DEA because sort of, he always felt he'd been sort of set up by the Americans. Or it was <clears throat> in Bolivia and you know and throughout South America, mm, the war on drugs is very much seen as an American war on drugs. You know, so they're paying to train and equip the local police and anti narcotics um, teams. They're paying for the helicopters to conduct fumigation. They can, they're paying for you know Latin American soldiers and police to do training with the US government in order to interdict drugs. And so prisoners, you know, rightly or wrongly in their twisted mentality, who have been caught for drug trafficking offences, tend to go, I shouldn't be here. If it wasn't for the Americans, I wouldn't be here. And because he was doing these tours and he hated America, well, he hated the DEA, well, he, uh, he decided that no, no, no US citizens were allowed in his room. Right. <laughs> well, and I was going to say, we'll come to the Colombiano bit, but you ended up working for the US government. Yeah, how, so- does, how does he feel about that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's, he's now on the straight and narrow, so I think, you know, his, maybe your values change according to your behaviour rather than the other way around. So right. he's, he was shocked. They didn't tell him, I didn't tell anyone. I told him, you know, years later, and he just couldn't believe it. Um, if he'd known at the time... I mean, this is after the book, so obviously... That's right. He this probably is the second book. He probably would have detected me. He was very good at sort of reading people, so he would have, he would have worked me out, I reckon. <laughs> and the in-house hospitality at San Pedro Prison involved lots of cocaine. That, that was on offer the night that he invited you to... To stick around as well. What, what did you think when this well, is all suddenly being laid out? Do you think where's the hidden camera? Or? Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. I, I refused at first. Um, I, you know, in, in law, there's a principle called entrapment. So if the police offer you drugs and they sort of encourage you to do it, you can't get busted. And I was like, this is entrapment. If you know, he's, there's a SWAT team going to bust the door down. I'm like, no way. And he sort of goes, what are you talking about? This is the safest place in, in the world to do cocaine. This is why he did the law degree. <laughs> and he goes, and, he goes, he goes if they, and if they bust you, what are they going to do? Put you in prison? You're already here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's, he, I didn't yet fully understand the dynamic, but because he was bringing so much money in, you know, he, can't, he didn't own the guards, but you know, he could always deal with the guards. It was always just a matter of money if someone ever got in trouble. And they, they, knew, they knew what people were doing. You see people go in and then come out an hour later, you know, clearly under the effects of drugs. So the police, the police were absolutely cognizant of what was going on and they were undoubtedly in, involved in the trafficking or at least taking a cut because <coughs> cocaine, you know, they were actually manufacturing it in, in small labs inside. Cocaine requires one kilogram of cocaine, which is about the size of an old VHS video cassette. Takes, it requires about a tonne of leaves. So what they were doing, they would bring it down to the... the paste levels, there's two stages in cocaine manufacture, you take the leaves, you leach out the alkaloid, 
put it in petrol, uh, sulfuric acid, and then you get a sort of gluggy paste. They dry that out, and then that gets refined. And it's the second part of the process that's a bit more difficult. So the first part's usually done in the jungle by peasant farmers or just, you know, even kids, you know, gumboots and barrels. And the next part's a bit more, requires a little bit more scientific experience. So they'd bring the paste in, but how do you get drugs through, through the prison walls? There's no holes, there's no helicopters. It was just a gate, and there were sniffer, sniffer dogs. So the fact that the, this prison was awash with cocaine pretty much indicates what was going on. The police yeah. were definitely involved. And it was sort of unsupervised inside. It was only really the perimeter that was supervised. Yeah, the, the inmates claimed that the police were too scared to go inside. I don't know whether... <laughs> I don't know whether that was actually their motivation, but yeah, they, they would come in once a day to mark the roll in the morning and just make sure everyone was there, and that was it. Um, other than that, they spent their time on the outside. The inmates, as a result of that, gradually developed their own sort of um, political system uh, where they, whereby they'd have a, a section delegate, sort of the, the leader for each of the suburbs, let's call them, and also a financial treasurer. When you go into the prison, you, you don't get given a cell, you have to buy a cell. So you choose which section you want to live in, and they're all different, and they all have different sort of a star rating. So some of the sections had six stars. That was for the politicians and the high-level drug traffickers. Mm-hmm. And the one star in it, there was even a zero-star section where you three or four inmates were staying in one little tiny box. And, and Thomas was in Thomas four? was in the four-star section, where, and I stayed with him for four months there. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sorry, I've lost my track of thought. <laughs> no, that's okay. So everyone who wants to write is always looking for a cracking good, you know, yeah. the, the, the cracking good story. How soon after you arrived there with Simone that very first time? Because you, you came back to Australia before you went back and, and embarked on the actual writing process. Mm. But how long after you met him there did you think, this is my cracking good story? Oh, look, as soon as I went in there, I thought, this is just going to be an amazing email. You know, I was like, the everyone. <laughs> and uh, we snuck a camera in. And so I was like, this is going to be a really cool, you know, look at adventure sort of tourism. And I think Thomas was aware of that. Every tourist that went in there went, this is the coolest place ever, you know, like there's this just so much fun. There's kids and dogs and cocaine. And, and it's spo- sponsored by Coca-Cola. They've actually got no Pepsi in the prison, so they've paid Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola, better get this right for legal reasons. The South American bottler of Coca-Cola paid an, for an exclusivity contract with the inmates for the well-being of the inmates, right. and they gave um, refrigerators, um, plastic tables and chairs, and there's big Coca-Cola signs up on the walls. I guess uh, on the scale of bad for your health, Coke's yeah. probably not at the top of the tree there. Well, but. and ironically, of course, um, Coca-Cola is still still has traces of, of coca leaf extract. I'm not saying it, some people say it's got cocaine in it. No. Um, there are two... Coca, the traffic of coca leaf is, is illegal throughout the world except for two, for two purposes. One is for... Um, a company in the US that uses it to make anaesthetics, um, like liquid anaesthetic. So they use it for rhinoplastic because they don't want to leave scars. So, and the second is Coca-Cola, and they transfer, I think they have a license to export something like four tonnes of leaves. So that wouldn't actually make that much cocaine, but it, they, they don't, they're very, very hush-hush about it. And uh, it's called Merchandise Number no. 5, if you want to look that up on the internet. They, they've, never give, they've never given a, an admission of that, but... It's manufactured in a different part of the United States. And at one point in the mid-'80s, just after Nancy Reagan declared just say no, um, and there was a spate of overdoses, and I think one of the comedians in the US called Richard Pryor set his hair on fire while he was smoking crack, and the Coca-Cola decided it was just politically uh, you know, incorrect to, put, to keep this, extract in, this Coca extract in Coca-Cola, and they took it out. And that was when uh, Pepsi started going up, and then they actually 
re-released it, you may remember this, around, I think it was around 1985, as classic Coke. Remember that little, remember when they went from the red and then it went to the white one? That was when they decided to put the Coca leaf extract back in Coca-Cola and regain their market share. So, who knows? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the secret. Maybe. M- MSG and traces of cocaine. Um, did you speak Spanish before you went travelling? I did about 10 hours of classes before and I took a dictionary and just, you learn pretty quickly, you know. Pick, yep. up, pick up the soap. <laughs> right. And when did you, how did you work out with Thomas that you were then going to write his story, basically? Um, Simone Camilleri, my then girlfriend, actually was, uh, was the one. She didn't actually make the final cut of the book. She's very angry with this. But um, it was too confusing because we actually spent two, night, two days and two nights in there. And she convinced Thomas that I was a really good writer. I won a few literary awards at university. Mm-hmm. And she convinced Thomas when I was sleeping, actually, that I was a really good writer and I would write his book. And so I, I sort of woke up groggily with a bit of a hangover and he's like, good, you're writing my book. And uh, I was excited because I sort of thought, oh, you know, it's going to take a week or so of research. And, of course, a week you know, dragged out into two, into three, and then ended up staying there for four months. was not my plan. Never do it again. But in some ways, I think that was probably, you know, one of the strengths of the research in the book was, you know, it seemed like a holiday camp and it's kind of funny, all these things, and ironic, all these things I'm describing, but... When you live in there, after a while, you realise it is a prison and it is dangerous and there is, there's a whole flip side to it. And I wouldn't have seen that but for uh, staying in there for that length of time. Yeah, I was interested in whether you ended up with Stockholm Syndrome, you know, whether you ended up normalising so much that you didn't feel like it was as bad or dramatic anymore. Yeah, I mean, look, firstly, I wasn't a prisoner, so I don't think I ever really fully entered into that mentality of, oh, my God, I'm really stuck here. Secondly, I did have an apartment on the outside, so I was free to go in and out. If we ever had an argument or I just needed to, you know... I wasn't a prisoner. I could just go out and come back and pay them again. Yeah. So, um, you know, there were t- it's still taxing. It's, you know, it's a cramped environment. It's, um, you know, it's overpopulated. And more than anything, forget the danger, it's just boring. It's really boring being stuck in, in, in any room. You could be in, you know, a fun park and you'd eventually get bored. So... Um, I don't think that I ever really suffered any, any trauma or anything. I was pretty lucky. You know, I, was, I, was having, I had a lot of fun. There was a point where I was just like, come on, let's get on with it. You know, I could probably interview someone about their life story in a, in a week or two, but he kept dragging it out. And the other thing was because he needed money and I didn't have I wasn't going to pay him for this book. We were just doing it you know, as friends. Um, he had to continue earning his, earning his keep by doing, running these tours. So you know, we'd start an interview... And then every sort of half an hour, there'd be a call, there'd be another tourist come in and go on the tour. So it really dragged out by virtue of the fact that he had to keep running his tours while we were doing the research and the interviews. And did he end up getting a cut of the profits from the book? Uh, legally, criminals are not allowed to receive um, any parts, any profits from their... Um, yeah. From their proceeds of crime. Proceeds of a crime act, yeah. That's, yeah. that's my answer. Right. Gotcha. Be that as it may. Um, and... So the process of, of, of collecting this information, he's obviously a beguiling kind of a character. Uh, it, it, it was a little bit frustrating, but how much of it is, has ended up being in his own words? How much is he the colourful char- character and how much of you had to sort of fill in some gaps? Yeah, look, a lot of this, this was the difficulty. I was like trying to write it as objective, non, objective non-fiction, more like a journalistic stuff and tr- cross-checking sources that come from the criminal underworld. And the main... Difficulty. The main storyline that was the most difficult to to validate was his story about this corrupt um, colonel who whom he paid uh, to let him through, and then that same colonel then turned on him and was the one that put him in prison. Now I had the court documents with the guy's name, you know, 
but if I go and ask him in an interview, uh, oh, I'm just here doing a book and I'm living in the prison, you know, would you mind telling me how you corruptly received this bribe? And then, you know, you're not going to get that. So the documentary evidence was, was limited. It was came a lot down to trust. But there were some amazing things where he, he just t- he told me, for example, the thing about the Coca-Cola. I was like, that's not true. You know, there's no contract. It can't actually be a contract. It, maybe there's like a handshake agreement. Like, oh, there's a contract. And eventually uh, he... I think he paid someone to break into the, into the office and brought out this eight-page contract in Spanish and it's just so legally written and it's got stamps and signatures and dates. And I was like, wow. And the other thing is this, the, the prison property system, they actually receive a property deed and they, that gets stamped by multiple witnesses, by the finance um, secretary of each section. They have to pay a transfer fee. So it's a lot like, it's a lot like a... You know, land tax in Australia, and you know that was, that absolutely astounded me. That you know, this all these stories, the things that I just doubted, he came up with a lot of evidence for. And of course, I did interview lots of other people inside the prison, had newspaper clippings. So I got gathered as much documentary evidence as I could, and I also filmed in there. We we did a piece with um, ABC's foreign correspondent in mm. 2002 because I was really worried. I thought people were going to think you went in there, you did a line of coke on the first page. And you and made it all up. Yeah, wrote a really good book, which is not really non-fiction, is it, Russell? Right. <laughs> um, so you were sort of covering yourself with... Yeah, and I was, waiting for, I was waiting for journalists to come at me and go, yeah, bullshit, you know, so, sorry, is this being recorded? Um, uh, one or two have, and they've gone, right, and I've gone, actually, this is really good, and I pulled out my documents and scanned them and sent them to them, and they went, actually, that's reasonable research. You know, I can't, I can't swear in my life that, you know, that all the his stuff that he said before I got there, you can't... It's, it's difficult when you're doing narrative non-fiction. Narrative non-fiction is you know, re- recreating a scene mm. and doing dialogue, storytelling. storytelling effectively. And that's what gives you know, fiction in particular its immediacy and that real sense of you being there. And that's what, we're tr- that's what I was trying to do in this book. But if I asked you what you were wearing two years ago and the exact words that you spoke to your best friend when you had coffee and what the name of the cafe was, are you going to remember all those details? So, of course, there's a, there's a degree of... You know, um, not embellishment, but a degree of, you know, filling in some gaps that are perhaps not important, but the essential storyline is definitely true. So four months of research there, and then did you come back and write it in Australia? No, so we got out at the very end of the, of the, the book. I found out that he, one of the reasons he was stalling me, and it, it was always like, oh, you've got to do this story tomorrow, tomorrow, uh, was that in the, between me meeting him and then going back to write the book there was a six month gap where I went, came back to Australia and worked as a lawyer to save money in that time he'd been charged with drug trafficking within the prison now he was a drug trafficker, he was selling cocaine to tourists so you know, was he, when he said to me oh, I'm not guilty of this particular incident it didn't really matter that much but what did matter is that he uh, he was facing another 10 years you know, it was the second offence second charges on the same... So an extension same, of his... Extension of his, of his sentence. And it, it would have been, you know, he was just about to go free and that was why, you know, I had to get back there before he went free to live in the prison with him. And then halfway through he goes, oh, by the way, I've got to go to court. What for? Uh, I've been charged with, you know, trying to sell cocaine in the prison. I've been set up. And he would have been facing another 10 years. When I was there, uh, one of his best friends was threatening to expose the police. They would take this guy out. It was a Brazilian guy called Samir. And they would take him out of the prison because uh, he was an expert car thief. And they would take him out at two in the morning, steal some cars, you know, give him a hundred dollars per car, and then put him back in there. And the police were selling off these stolen cars. They were selling it down. So he, one day they just stopped paying him for some reason. He was pretty crazy. He was a drug addict. 
and they, they just tortured him to death and they hung him in his cell and made it look like suicide. And that was the point where I was like, you know, ethically, I could not have written this book or published this book at least if, if Thomas had still been in prison. So I really, you know, there was a degree of, yeah, mate, I'll get you out. And there was also a degree of, shit, I've spent four months doing research and if I don't get you out, there's no book because, you know, I wouldn't risk his life. Yeah, because you were worried the same thing yeah, would happen. So to there you. was a degree of so I mean, you know, in some ways, people sort of go, "Oh, you, you know, you're brave to do that." It was there was a degree of self-interest there as well. It was like, I've put all my eggs in one basket, quit my job, spent all my money, lived in this prison, and now I'm I'm facing the possibility of not being able to publish this book. So you wrote it. You did. Pu- he got out. You yep. did. You we, wrote so it. We you bribed it. the judges. They asked for eight thousand dollars. I said, "We're going to introduce a new concept here because basically in Bolivia, you pay the whole amount and trust them, and then then they go, no." Oh. So I said, this is, this is the, the, lay, the lay-by bribe, like Kmart and Target. You know, you go and you put 50% down, you get your prisoner. I'll give you the rest later. Yeah, and then we didn't. <laughs> we just ran away to Colombia, so we cl- had to leave the country. Right, this is where the cliche honour among thieves comes from. Uh, there was probably. complete dishonour, Karen. So you can't go back there ever? Uh, I did go back there, actually. I went back um, at the... I went, actually, I've been back twice. I went back with, Sun, with Channel 7 Sunday night with mm-hmm. Denham Hitchcock, if anyone mm-hmm. saw that episode. That was really nerve-wracking because I hadn't been there for years and the book had taken off, right? And when we, as soon as we went back in, we had to bribe our way back in, I was just worried that they were going to realise as soon as I entered the, the country because of you know, passports and stuff. But Bolivia's still a little bit behind the technology and they didn't, there was no flags went up or anything. Uh, but as soon as we went inside the prison, they went, Rusty, hey! <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God. So this, and unfortunately, all the, all, the, all the fun people, you know, low-level drug traffickers had, had been released because it had been... It had been, what, 15 years, and the people who remained who still recognised me were the murderers because they, they were in there, for, in there for 30 years. Hey, Rusty, remember me? I'm like, yeah, OK. So the result was an international bestseller, which yeah. set you up to be able to write yeah. for a profession and not have to worry about that silly business, the law, anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, how, then, do you get to Columbia and what you've now produced, which I gather took you many years to write? Yeah, the first one took probably about... A year, a year and a half. Like I say, let's say four months research, a year and a bit to, to do the first draft, and then let's say another six months to edit, and then six months lead time for the publisher. So all in all, from from the first day to the last, it was maybe two and a half years. So that was it's really quite a short time for for a book to to get out. Mm. This one has taken twelve years from go to work, <laughs> and it's fiction. So it's like, why does it take so long? Um, and was that a strange experience shifting to fiction? Or? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I didn't realise. I just sort of thought, if you can write, you can write. You know, I, obviously I could write, but I found out that I couldn't necessarily write fiction. Fiction is a really different beast. I think it's a lot more requires a lot. This is no disrespect to any non-fiction writers and or journalists in the room, but it does actually like fiction is a lot harder. I think non-fiction people, uh, readers and critics, don't necessarily judge you so much on your writing style but more on the content of what you're writing. So if you're doing a good expose or if it's just an interesting subject matter, that's enough and people don't, people don't expect you to be a, you know, a, a, a literary prize winner for non-fiction. Fiction, you're competing against you know, Booker Prize winners and it doesn't matter that you're 25 years old or 60 years old. A book is a book as far as a reader is concerned. They don't go, oh, this is a good book for a 21-year-old. They go, this is a good book, period. Um, and so I really found that I had to relearn a whole or learn a whole lot of skills that I didn't really credit fiction writers with having: story arc, character development, um, theme, you know, plot. Yeah. <laughs> and did you go to Columbia looking for the next cracking good story? So I went there 
basically because we needed somewhere to live. We, you know, we had, we, Thomas was on parole. We skedaddled from Bolivia. And uh, I heard that there were... I'd, I'd been to Colombia before and I knew that there were jobs going there. There were very few tourists there. So you could get a job quite easily as an English teacher without qualification, so just by virtue of being a native speaker. Um, and so, you had a taste for South America. Yeah, I loved, I loved South America. And I also knew that if, if I'd come back to Sydney, I would have gone, OK, I need a job. I'll just get a job in law and then I'll do this on the weekends. I would have lost my passion. So it was good to stay there and to have Thomas there. And basically I'd write chapters, read them out, and he would go give me corrections. So I wrote every word, but Thomas was very much a collaborator in this book. Mm-hmm. In, in the, the Colombiano book? No, in the, in sorry, the in the first book. one. Right? Yeah. So Marching Powder was written in Colombia. Right. And then I came back, published it, and went, right, what am I going to do? I'm, I've now been living in Colombia for three years, love it, had a girlfriend there, just had, you know, just had the time of my life. And I was like, I want to go back to Colombia and write a book about Colombia. On the plane, on the way back into Colombia after the launch of Marching Powder here and in the UK, I was going through... Miami airport and I met a suspicious looking character in his late 40s and uh, we got chatting and I said, I said, what do you do? What are you doing in Bogota? And he said, I'm, I'm in construction. And I'm like, really? Construction? There's not much construction going on there. And uh, he was a lovely guy, really nice, friendly guy who shall remain nameless and, and he just sort of said, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'm an English teacher. He's like, how much money do you earn as an English teacher? I was like, no, well, I think I was earning about $1,000 a month, so $12,000 a year. Um, yeah, obviously, it's actually a decent amount of money in Colombia, but you know, as someone with a commerce law degree, when you, your friends are making lots of money, I went, and by the at this stage, the book I didn't know whether the book was selling or not. Um, it takes a while for books to take off. Mm. So, as far as I was concerned, I'd achieved my mission. I just wanted to keep writing and wanted to write my next book. Um, and then he offered me a job, and he, in fact, worked for the US government. And he sort of said, Why don't you take a job with us? We'll pay you this much. And I was like, doing what? Like, why me? What, what have I, yeah, I'm a what, lawyer. <laughs> why, why did he pick you? Look, I think the honest response is, at that time, this is early t- January 2004, um, the, the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars were really kicking off and they were paying a lot of money. So all the really, let's say, the top-level contractors in these positions were, were being drawn to, to Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, these, these guys are earning $1,200 US a day tax-free. So it's huge money if you go if you go into a war zone as a as a contract, and this mm-hmm. is the big debate that we always that we should be having more of is, you know, um, outsourcing of government wars to private military um, industry. Um, Mercenaries, effectively, or p- potentially. Know. I mean, the training side, I actually understand it makes sense to to get specialised people in who c- civilians who have the skills, but yeah, part of it is also you know, see no evil, hear no evil, and, you know, if something happens to... Also, it allows them quite cynically to not um, include civilian contractors who are, who are killed for whatever reason in the line of fight within their the number of American casualties. So in the Iraq war, they're like, oh, you know, I think a million, I think a million Iraqis were killed, or maybe more, and the American death toll officially was something, you know, in, only in the thousands. You know, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, we're up to 700, 800, but it was, pro- it was likely a lot more when you consider the number of private mil- PMCs, they're called private military contractors. And he was engaged in all the people he was working with were engaged in training the local military. Mm. Uh, and this is where the kidnapping issue and the child soldiers issue comes in. But the, tell us about the kidnapping statistics in, in Colombia because kidnapping was a huge trade and they were essentially trying to combat that. Were they? Mm. So the, 
The FARC guerrilla, we have to go back a little bit in time, the FARC guerrilla began in the mid-60s and it's a communist insurgency. They were fighting against a corrupt central, what they perceived to be a corrupt central government uh, that had neglected uh, rural uh, subsistence farmers. You know, Colombia's a, a very wealthy nation in terms of resources, natural resources. We've got coal, oil, uh, export bananas, flowers, palm oil. Like It's a really wealthy agricultural country. And... So they, they aimed to topple the central government and install communism, and but they, they needed to finance themselves. So by about the sort of 80s and 90s, uh, they believed that their numbers were up to seven, between 17 and 20,000. That's a massive army. It was the biggest uh, insurgency army in the Western Hemisphere. So it cost millions of dollars to run an army, uniforms, food, weapons, bullets, you know, bribes. Um, and so they needed money. So their main sources of income initially were extortion of wealthy landowners and businesses. They actually declared, they declared a 10% tax on anyone who had a million dollars. Mm. And if people didn't pay, they would kidnap them and, and sell them back to their family members. A really, really cynical, uh, horrific crime. And how often did they kill them if they didn't get what they wanted? Um, they were pretty good because obviously they were actually reasonably good at returning people because obviously you know, it's just, it was a certain... You know, it's their, credi- their market credibility, if you yeah. like. It's, it's a horrible thing to think about. But, you know, it's, if, 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 they, if enough people paid and, and their loved one were killed, then the next person's gonna, not going to pay. So they pretty much pa- did return the hostages when they were paid. It was a question of how much they asked for. You know, they would try they'd find out your bank accounts that hold you for months and then investigate your family, find out who your uncle was, and then bankrupt the whole family, effectively. And that, was, that proved to be extremely... Um, unpopular with the locals, the Colombians, really, because they were supposedly fighting for the people, right? And it's just such an horrific crime. Mm. Um, and then they started using cocaine trafficking. But going back to the kidnapping, it was the country with the highest rate of kidnapping in the world. There were between three and 4,000 kidnap victims per year. That's, that's, re- that's reported kidnaps. So the, probably the, the actual number was a lot higher because the first thing kidnap, kidnappers do is say, don't call the authorities. And if you don't tell the authorities, you keep it quiet, you pay a lesser amount, get it done privately. And so it really was a dangerous country to be in. To, in term, if you're talking about, yeah, on average, nine to ten people per day being taken, usually in the country, often on the roads. So Colombians, were, you never drive at night time, you get everything done during the day, and there'd be a mad scramble before dark. And uh, the government army didn't control the roads outside of the capital's major cities like... Bogota, Medellin and Cali, you know, it was basically you would not drive at night time. People were paranoid, people were really scared. And so when the US government um, started putting funds into counter-terrorism around the world, in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, Indonesia, Philippines also has a kidnap problem, um, they, the, the focus in Colombia was on anti-kidnapping. And so basically kidnap rescue and kidnap prevention. So as soon as someone's taken, call, bang, send the helicopters out, send out the team, surround them, block them off, give the hostage back, and stopping extortion. So basically, if someone's being extorted previously, be like, basically, if you don't pay us, you know, we'll blow up, we'll blow up your building with a bomb, we'll kidnap your son. And then, so now, if you call the police now in Colombia and you say, I'm being extorted, the police will come along and grab the kidnapper and then grab their, up, you know, their commanders and stuff. So it really turned the whole country around. Not this, I'm not claiming that the program I was involved in turned the country around. It was a, it was a national effort from the army, just a whole change of attitude. It was rather than pacifying the insurgency, it was, right, we're sick of this, let's was, fight. Was this a clandestine program the Americans were in? Was this a no, it was, it, was all, it was all part of a, a bigger, um, 
big ask into it's called an inter-country agreement called Plan Colombia, and it was worth 4.3 billion dollars. Uh, I think the US put in 1.3 in the first tranche of money, and the, and the European Union put in 3 billion, and it was combined with their anti-narcotics efforts. So this particular program was just one of many programs that was part of Plan Colombia, which unfortunately was mainly military aid. Um, they probably didn't spend enough on sort of social programs, uh, education. All uh, you know, there was maybe two or three percent was for positive social programs, but the rest was in military contracting, military skills. It did need it. Colombia had fewer police and army per capita than Canada, you know, which is at peace. So it really was under resourced, and that really turned around with the government um, around 2002. Oh, actually, when Plan Columbia came in under Clinton in the late 90s, but the, the real funding came in around 2001, 2002, building bases, training locals, and then uh, right now they've, they've just basically forced the insurgents back into the mountains, and they finally, after 50 years, said, OK, and they signed a peace pact. So this is one example. You know, I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of Australians in particular, are very cynical about the US you know, getting, meddling in affairs of developing nations around the world. But this, to my mind at least, was a success, one of their success stories. And they haven't really done a great job of um, you know, banging the drum about it and sort of saying this is a success story. But Colombia, you know, after, at, at the end of this period, had the third fastest growing economy in the world. And before that, it was in, you know, it was in depression. They hadn't had, hadn't had any economic growth. They didn't have a middle class. And the government was falling apart. It was... So were you involved in this at the time Ingrid Betancourt went missing? Yeah, so she was... She's the she, Yeah, she, I, I was there when she was... I was in the country when she was kidnapped and I was there when she was rescued. That was the 2nd of July 2008, along with... So, yeah, the danger... I mean, the, your question before was, was this clandestine? No, it wasn't. Did I tell anyone? No. I, I would rock around looking, wearing jeans and long hair and unshaven and just, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm in construction, yeah. <laughs> had, a bull, had a bulletproof car. <laughs> it's a good story, the construction story. Mm. And what were you doing I, didn't, I don't think I ever know how to lay a brick. <laughs> were um, you doing logistics or...? Yeah, so I wasn't part of the frontline troops or anything. I'd never fired a weapon. I was around weapons. Um, or we constructed a base. So there was some construction. It was just a military base and what's called a shoot house. A shoot house is a, a mock house where you, you go and you do kidnap rescue so you you know sort of bash the door in blow it up it's called breaching explosives water charges uh debt cord and then you go and fire live rounds so basically anyone who saw 60 minutes on sunday night would have seen a bit of that sort of it's still on if you if you didn't catch 60 minutes it's up there on the on the web you can watch that program but it's got live you know in there in the shoot house firing live rounds they're bouncing off the walls and stuff so um so the shoot house, the firing range, uh, shooting range, pistol range, uh, we gave them weapons, so the weapons had to be imported on planes. Uh, we had to sign the weapons over because they're really mindful of the weapons you know, being diverted. Uh, bullets they needed, grenades, uniforms, food while they're training, bring in the instructors, accommodation, so the whole, you know, the whole logistical and financial side. You were a one-man Kellogg Brown route. No, I wasn't one man. It was, I was I was one of many. Uh, you know, I mean, it was managed from Washington. I reported back to them. Yeah. But it was just something that you wouldn't go around advertising, because it would pretty quickly get out. Oh, such and such is working for the U.S. government, and in a country where with such high kidnapping rates and where the you know it's a communist the communist insurgency doing the kidnapping. If you're working for the U.S. government, you're <coughs> you're a target, and. Uh, Three guys who were subcontractors at the time in, in 2003, 2004 got taken, captured, and they were 
held in the jungle for seven and a half years. Seven and a half years. Mm. One of them had a, a pregnant girlfriend at the time and came out seven and a half years later and had a seven-year-old, seven-and-a-half-year-old kid. Mm. Uh, seven-year-old kid, sorry. Um, and they were rescued on the same day as Ingrid Betancourt. There were 15 of them who were, had been held for years and years and years. And, uh, yeah, I actually met Ingrid Betancourt and said hello to her again at the Opera House when she came and did a book signing. I was like, hi. She's like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so I, wasn't, I was not involved in that operation. I'm not claiming that. But, um, yeah, we, I was there at the time and that was the groups, that were the groups that we were working with mm. that did Kidnap Rescue. So this book, which I have to say is, is beautifully written... Thank you. ..is... Um, looks at things from the perspective of some of these young people growing up in this community, exposed to the kind of drug trade that you were talking about in relation to Bolivia that goes on in Colombia, obviously, as well. In fact, we probably know more about the Colombian element of drug, the drug trade. We hear, hear more about it. Mm-hmm. And this pressure to go on and pick the leaves and, and work in, the, in that trade and the pressure from these competing groups. How did, how did you get exposed to, to that in order to produced the research for what became this novel? <clears throat> so there were three, three primary ways I was um, getting access to these... They were basically former child soldiers. Um, it's, it was, I was able to speak to adult um, insurgents and paramilitaries who were still in their groups because uh, you could go out and they, the groups actually were, were competing with each other for publicity. So if you, if you were a journalist or claimed to be a journalist, you could go out and interview them about their political causes. Um, it was always dangerous to speak to one group and then the other, so you might speak to one group in one region and then go to another region to speak to the other and publish something under a different name. Um, so were you publishing...? No, I wasn't publishing. I was like, this is what the jur- typically the journalists would do, right. but I could get access and, yeah. in order to get my stories, and I would just say, I am a journalist, and then I was doing research for my book. Yeah. They will not admit that they've got child soldiers or they just want to... They, they wouldn't allow you into a camp and say, hey, can I speak to a child soldier? Hey, how's it going being a child soldier? Um, <laughs> So the, the, all the kids that I spoke to had, um, had come out of the war. They'd either been captured or they'd, been, they'd deserted or they had, um, the, their particular unit had handed itself in or they'd been captured because they were guarding um, hostages. So they've got limited number of troops and the, all the hostages have to be guarded. They have like a, several security rings of guards around them 24 hours. Whenever they move, they've got to be surrounded by a squad. So typically they'd have used the kids because the kids you know, weren't as valuable in batter, battle so they would use these kids and so all these hostages would just complain about being locked in the jungle or in a rural, you know, on a farm somewhere, isolated and being surrounded by kids and kids with AK-47s talking about the oligarchy, you know, like these kids are poor, uneducated, uh, you know, peasant farmer kids. Who, and are they passionate or are they no, dragged just, into this because they haven't got an option? Unlike, I mean, most people think of child soldiers and they think of Africa, Blood Diamonds, obviously mm. really put, brought that cause to world attention, um, as did the recent campaign, I think, a few years back with uh, trying to get one of the, one of the um, warlords in Africa. Um, <clears throat> most of the kids joined up voluntarily. When I say voluntarily, can children give consent and volunteerism is, is you know, it's a, it's a grey term as well. But they, they were bored, they were poor, they were hungry, they were come from families where... It's a Catholic country. They don't believe in contraception. So big families, eight kids, dads off in the fields, mums off cleaning a house. Uh, you know, they're at home with their brother and sisters. And the government is just not present or was not present in probably about 30 or 40% of the country. There's just no government infrastructure whatsoever, no police, no courthouse, no garbage collection, no electricity. And so these armed groups were just 
just took over. They just took take over the, the, the whole area and they were the law. So they would just come past the house every day and they're looking for kids and then one day a kid gets bored, has a fight with their parents and goes, guess what, I'm bored, sick of school, I'm just going to go off an adventure. And you know, we've all had that. <laughs> I think every, every teenager has that, that moment. I had a few of them when I was like, that's it, I'm running away. <laughs> I usually get to the end of the street and I go, Jesus, cold. <laughs> I wonder what mum's cooking. <laughs> but so they, once they join up, unfortunately, they say, yeah, they'll say, you come in, we'll, we'll look after you. And once they join, they can't leave. And if they do, they, they'll be executed and often there'll be reprisals against their family. So once these kids were captured and they were in government care, they put them in foster care and you had to apply for access to speak to them. And then it was a matter of earning their trust, which is quite difficult because these kids are really traumatised, have had horrific experiences. So then um, often it would take, I'd take like a bunch of five or ten of them out, hire a minivan and take them back out into the countryside and go, go swimming in the river and just sort of be friendly, you know, just treat them like normal kids. Childhood. Yeah, like they had missed out on their childhood. So mm-hmm. to have an adult around who... I mean, I did want something from them, but who wasn't there to abuse them and wasn't there to kind of take advantage of them. Um, they it took a while to win their trust and then they started telling, opening up and telling me their stories and I was like, wow. So I want to give people a chance to ask you questions sure. and I'm mindful of the time, but I just want to quickly ask you before I do that, the, the character Pedro in mm. here, who's a 15-year-old boy, and this book starts with him... Um, being drawn into this world out of revenge, effectively. I mean, a friend who was kind of inclined to the glamorous life and (laughs) not much reason to stick around, I'm going to go run off with them. And then eventually he joins him, you know, because of the... Of, of, a, of a desire for revenge. revenge yeah. Is he based on a, a real person or yeah. is he amalgam of... So, yeah, so basically Pedro is a composite character. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much all the, all the main characters in there, all the child soldiers, were based ar- around one of the stronger interviewee sub- interview subjects I, I, I um, spoke to. Mm-hmm. Um, the trouble is that all these kids that I interviewed, probably interviewed, I'm, I'm guessing about 40 or 50, some of them on, on the record with tape, some of them refused I take notes, some of them wouldn't even let me take notes. Many of them wouldn't let me you know, even know their names um, until a later point. Or when I did find their names out, they said, you know, I don't want my name or my photo anywhere. So um, their stories, they often had really fascinating stories about how they joined or why they joined. And then others had fascinating stories about a battle that they'd been in. Others had a fascinating story about cocaine or a commander. So all these stories were fascinating. It was like, how do you put them into one? So mm. I guess I have took the best of all these stories and gave them to Pedro. But the, there was a Pedro who witnessed his father's execution and that was and he joined up and then his story wasn't as exciting as the rest of this Pedro story so it's a you know there's, there's a, it's, it's a it really is a blend of fact and fiction the, the historical setting is accurate uh, the training and all the things that go on in the story in the background are all accurate but the storyline is fiction well congratulations on it it's, it's beautiful but gruesome thank you Karen it's worth reading can you join me in thanking Rusty Young and then I'm going to invite or we're going to invite you to ask Look, what a wonderful, wonderful discussion about the amazing stories in your in your in your book. There, it made me think I should write a book about the national working at the National Library. <laughs> Come on, I got a paper cut last week. <laughs> Look, um, we've got a few minutes for questions. We do have a mic, so if you do want to ask uh, Rusty a question, please put your hand up, and um, we'll bring the mic around just so it, uh, it can make, make the recording as well. And sign a waiver. Yeah. <laughs> Great, thanks. I didn't ask you where Rusty comes from. Is that short for something? Uh, I was christened Russell, and then I just got Rusty. So. Right. Yeah. And it's stuck. It's stuck. I much prefer it. <laughs> <laughs>
It's a better name on the cover, isn't it? Well, now it's on the cover of two books. <laughs> okay, there was a question over there, I think. Rusty, thank you very much for your presentation. Very, very interesting. Thank and you. I'm looking forward to Thanks reading for the book. Um, talking about the child soldiers in Colombia, were they all male or were there females in there? And what was the gendered roles of the females yes, and men? Yes, good question. I'm sorry we didn't mention that. So, surprisingly, shockingly, I'd say 35% of the, just in general, in, the, in these armed groups were between 30 and 35% were female. So, and 30, yeah, 35%. Um, girl child soldiers. Um, the girl, the the female child soldiers tended to have abusive backgrounds, like physical abuse or sexual abuse. So they were really running away from that. And like, surprisingly, in most cases, they were treated that, that within these groups they had statutes to protect women's rights. So it really sounds like it's a. It sounds like they're really progressive. But of course, they're not. Um, but so. But, Kids would, young girls would join up because they'd been abused, and there's a lot of sexual abuse in the countryside in Colombia. There's no authorities, big families. Sometimes the girls would go to their mother, and the mother would either say, "I don't believe you," or she would know, and she would make a decision not to do anything about it because, you know, so poor, need the husband's income, seven kids, and um, what were their roles within the within the groups? They were treated as, you know, again, this was put as a progressive, um, posited as a progressive policy that women are equal to men. So that just meant they had to carry the same amount of weight, fire the same rifles, be in the same front line. Um, and the, the, the horrific thing was in terms of, um, you know, the, the difference the way women were treated and men, and men were treated because there was basically two, sometimes three to one ratio of men to women. You know, and there's, there's the kids, they've got lots of hormones... Um, and you know, in Colombia and Latin American countries and poorer nations in general, they don't have the same social mores about age differences in romantic and sexual partners. So often the commanders would choose, you know, the best-looking girl. She might just be, just might just have turned 12 or 13, and go, well, that you're going to be my partner. Give them some privileges because you know, in order to to win her over, and uh, that then they, the young girls felt more protected. So there's real co- sort of sexual competition. And amongst the you know the teenagers, if you, you know, if you're a teenage boy wanting to um, you know have a romantic li- liaison with um, someone of your own age, you had to actually go and ask permission of the commanders, right? So the commanders go, no, we don't approve of that because I like her. <laughs> so pretty, really horrific. As soon as the, in the in the FARC anyway, because they, they can't afford to have babies and infants, you'd lose a fem- you'd lose a combatant, and you'd have a baby that could give you know, needs requires a lot of attention. And also makes noise, and can't, difficult to carry around when you're having battles. So, it was illegal under their statutes to get pregnant. And so, as soon as uh, girls got their first period, they were injected, forcibly injected with um, anti, with a called anti-contraceptive, um, contraceptive injections, even if they weren't sexually active. It was the assumption was, guess what? You're not sexually active, but you soon will be. So, really, you know, and love was forbidden as well. That was I found that quite interesting because. Obviously, the revolution was first. So if people fell in love, they would be separated. So you're allowed to have what they called partners, but not lovers. Not You weren't allowed to actually be, get too close and they'd separate you. Because if you got too close, and particularly if you got too close and became pregnant, people would run away and go, look, I don't believe in this revolution anymore. I've found something far better. Mm. Mm. Good question. Yeah, we've got, we've got more time. So any, any more questions? <clears throat> yeah, 
Nice to meet you, Rusty. I'm um, really Likewise. looking forward to reading your new book. Thank you. Um, obviously, Columbia's been in the news a lot lately with Cassie Sainsbury and what she's found herself in. Mm. What do you think uh, about her situation and what do you think conditions will be like for her in Columbia? Yeah, I get asked that question probably about five times a day from the media. Apologies. <laughs> um, what do, I, what, what do I think of her situation? I mean, I think, uh, obviously, we can't comment, speculate on her innocence or guilt. Certainly, there's been highly inconsistent stories coming out of uh, from her mouth and from her family's mouth, her lawyer's mouth. started out with uh, buying headphones for a wedding to I've been tricked to I, um, I thought I was laundering money to um, did it because I was under death threats, all sorts of inconsistencies. I can say... In general, without commenting specifically on her case, I think it's irresponsible to, you know, condemn her publicly when she hasn't had a fair trial. And the only competent authority to make that decision is the Colombian justice system. So we've we've really given her a trial by media, in a way that uh, would not be done in Australia because it's illegal for journalists to, you know, start calling someone guilty. They've always, but if it's if it's happening overseas, then they sort of give themselves carte blanche to say what they want. Um, no, there's no Colombians involved there in that case. Um, cartels don't run drug mules. If you have a thousand tons of cocaine, you're going to run 200 mules with five kilograms, or you're going to run a ton out in a container ship. No cartels there. It's not Colum- they're not Colombians behind that one. It's so unsophisticated. Um, she's not in any danger in the prison. They look after <coughs> they look after foreigners in particular. Columbia- Colombians don't take cocaine in general. Most Colombians I met had never even seen cocaine. They hate it. It's been a scar on, on their country. They look at it in the same way as we look at heroin and ice as a dirty, dirty drug. It's just for you know for people who are on dropouts. Whereas we see it, well, not everyone, but a lot of people in Australia see it as a gram- glamorous drug because of its price tag. It's, it's seen to be something which is a luxury, and it's not for Colombians. They're, 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 sick of, they're sick of it, and they're sick of being blamed for it essentially the Western demand. Yes, that, that, the Colombians totally freely go, yeah, we've got a problem with um, lawlessness and obviously drugs is a really obvious way to make money, but they see that the, the demand is what's driving the, fueling the violence and the corruption in Colombia. And now that they're coming out of the peace process, they're really trying to attract tourists. So this is another, one more sort of ne- negative news story that the Colombians don't want to hear about. So they want this to be over with. And you've got a view about the ethics, in inverted commas, of participating in that as a user of cocaine in Australia, haven't you? If you yeah, look, I mean, I, I don't want to be hypocritical because I have I have taken cocaine in my life, so it's very be hypocritical of me to stand up in my soapbox and go, don't do it. But there is definitely a link, and I think part of my my wanting to write this was to sort of say, to educate people that you know. Western drug habits. When you take a, when you take a drug on a Friday night, and you think it's fun and in Australia, uh, you don't see the consequences of that and, and where, the, where that money is flowing, where the, money, where the cocaine's coming from and where the money's going back into. And without cocaine, I guarantee this war in Colombia and all these child soldiers, that would have, that would have ended decades ago. Think about communism really um, began to break apart on an international level. Berlin Wall fell in 89. The USSR collapsed shortly thereafter. And yet... There are still communists in 2017, or up to this year, 2017, they were still pushing for communism. But how, how did they survive? Well, cocaine trafficking, tax, at least taxing it. So it's a shame that, you know, I think as a society we need to make a choice, which is worse, terrorism or drugs? Because when drugs are illegal, the profits are really high, and unless you can stem the demand, 
all you do is when you're busting drugs is actually de decreasing supply, which increases profits and and uh, and it makes it more attractive and more lucrative for terrorist organisations. Mm. Uh, the Taliban, funded by poppies. Mm -hmm. um, the two, the three, they were the three. At one stage, they were the three wealthiest. The three wealthiest terrorist organisations they're called F FTOs, foreign terrorist organisations, were the Taliban, the Colombian FARC, and the Colombian paramilitaries. All of whom were financed by heroin and cocaine. So take away, either legalise it or take away the demand somehow. That would be the magical thing is everyone stopped doing it voluntarily or if somehow we could be educate people to, you know, to, to take you know, more ethical decisions. And then suddenly you've lost all, uh, not all, but you've lost a lot of the financing from, from criminal gangs. Look what's happening in Mexico now. I mean, they've got Colombia under control. I think in four years, 150,000 people were killed along the Mexican border. And then look at the number of people who die, actually die per year of cocaine overdoses, it's, it's in the low thousands. Still a horrific way to go, still something that is worth society you know, trying to clamp down on drug use, drug consumption. It does destroy lives, but the question is, has the current policy worked and, or has it been counterproductive and actually resulted in far, and if you're looking at human lives, far more people die from the you know, fight in the war on the drugs than from the drugs themselves. Thanks very much. Well, look, unless we've got any further questions, Rusty, that was um, such an eye-opening um, bunch of really, really fascinating stories, but also um, kind of some interesting insights into a part of the world I certainly don't know as much about as I should. So I'm looking forward to reading your book. So thanks thank very much. Thank you very much for hosting, and thank you, everyone, for coming. I really enjoyed the questions, and everyone was very attentive. So thanks yeah. for coming. Look, um, I would like to invite you all downstairs to the foyer for some refreshments. Rusty's kindly agreed to sign some books which are available at a 10% discount in our bookshop and also have another look around as well. Um, we've always got some interesting events here at the National Library and I'm not allowed out of the room until I spruik these events. The, um, firstly, I'd like to thank um, Penguin Random House for making it possible for Rusty to come along tonight. Uh, the next Wednesday at 6 o'clock, Genevieve Jacobs from ABC talks with David Haskell, author of Songs of Trees. David is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and brings some observations on the biological networks that surround all species, including humans. Look, thanks again, Rusty, for coming along this evening, and please join me downstairs. <laughs>